0: In um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress there's a scene where Christian, who's the central character encounters another traveller named Faithful and Faithful begins to tell him a story of how he was beaten and hit by somebody who came across and he was being beaten and assaulted for everything he'd ever done wrong by this person who ended up knocking him unconscious, only to be waiting for him to come round again and then beat him into unconsciousness once again. Faithful, quite understandably, cries out for mercy, but his assailant says something odd. He says he does not know how to be merciful. He does not know how to stop this, and he goes on hitting him and knocking him out until eventually he's made to stop by somebody who turns out to be a representation of Jesus. (laughs) And it's a picture of how the law of Moses that Jesus has just spoken about shows us our faults and beats us with them, but has no power to show us mercy or to help us to do better. But Jesus, who does have that power, has spoken about fulfilling the law, and as we saw last week... um, This means that he fulfills the law for us by his obedience, delivering us from its penalty. But also fulfilling what the law wants us to be by helping us to do and to be what the law can't do in itself. Be the kind of person that commandments like do not murder, do not commit adultery, and all the others are trying to point us towards being. And so the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a manifesto for life in this new covenant kingdom. It's the law fulfilled by God's redemption of us and his grace working in us. Jesus has spoken too, hasn't he, about his people needing to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And part of the clue as to what this means is in our passage when Jesus begins with, You have heard it said. Because when he's just referring to the written law of scripture, he says it is written. We may remember that he says that during his temptation in the wilderness. (coughs) But here by saying, you've heard it said, he's making a contrast not just with the law, but with the many clauses that rabbis had added to the law to try and qualify it, and in some cases to actually cheat its effectiveness a bit. For example, as our passage is going to go on to talk about murder, the Old Testament law forbade murder and punished it with the death penalty. But over the years, a whole series of clauses had been added about how serious it was if it was this person or that person, depending on their social standing and loads of other things. But what Jesus is saying to his listeners and to us, is don't just look at the physical act and try and cheat your way around it. Look at where the act is coming from. Look at its roots in your heart and work on dealing with that. Finally, a clicker that works. (laughs) And this is evident straight away as Jesus begins to unpack the relationship between murder and anger He moves from just talking about murder in verse 21 to suddenly, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. Now, some translations add to verse 22 the words without cause. They're in italics usually when they are added. And early theologians were quite divided over this. Consensus is that a lot of early manuscripts do include it but the very earliest, most reliable ones that we have don't, which justifies the NIV not including it. And so we're not being given without cause as a get-out here, largely because our judgment of the causes of anger is often not very sound, and we've all been there, haven't we? But perhaps those words are still a stop and think point for us. Am I right to be angry? A call to think about our reactions to circumstances and to people because in thinking about this we may well ask what about the times when Jesus gets angry or calls people hypocrites or when the bible talks about God's anger for example Psalm 7 God is angry with the wicked every day Likewise, as in verse 22, Jesus goes on to contrast the previous rabbinic use of the word raka, a word literally meaning idiot or blockhead or stupid (coughs) and expressing contempt for someone, with a new injunction not to regard your brethren as fools. We may well ask, what about when Jesus calls the Pharisees fools and blind? Or the parable that shows a man... Who gave no thought to eternity, being called a fool by God. The clue to the different attitudes here is in the original Greek language, which gives us two very different word pictures. And so when God talks about human foolishness, the root Greek behind it is not without respect and compassion and an affirmation of our human dignity in his sight. But it's something that doesn't flare up for the sake of it. It's recognizing that we have acted without reason, with incomplete thought or revelation or information, haven't thought things through properly, haven't been properly informed. It's a mindset that says what it needs to, that stands against injustice when it needs to, but in a way that still loves people and wants what is best for them. And it's also a mindset that moves on, an anger that passes, that doesn't bear grudges. And this is totally consistent with the whole Bible's picture of God. There's nothing new here. The new covenant hasn't suddenly rewritten who God is. For example, in Psalm 103, we read that God is slow to anger, and in Psalm 30, that his anger is fleeting, but his favour is forever. By contrast, then, the attitude that's being condemned in us is one that rages, flares up too quickly, harbors enmity, bears grudges, regards people with contempt, and runs down people's characters. John's first epistle puts it for us bluntly. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in darkness. So that's the attitude Jesus is talking about That's the naming of people as fools that we shouldn't do. And God commands this of us because he knows that it's good for us. Psychologists tell us that being too angry, as a matter of course, can damage our capacity to make judgments, our general well-being, as well as, bizarrely, our short-term memory, even our immune system. So anger is an issue that affects us as much as it damages our relationships with others. And that's why verses 23 and 24 go on to challenge us about getting right with people before offering our gift. For Jews at that time, that would perhaps have challenged them about seeing the sacrificial system in a new way. Don't just offer an animal for your fault, job done, it's expiated, deal with the fault first for us who thankfully don't have to deal with all the mess of offering animal sacrifices anymore it can be a challenge perhaps that religious observance and service can't and don't replace a Christ like mindset and it's also why as we're going to have communion tonight when we say the sign of peace before doing that together it's more than just a a ritual handshake and general wishing well, because, you know, we're British and we're polite like that. It's more deeply about entering into a commemoration of Christ's death for all of us in unity. And so, have we ever, in that moment, said, peace be with you and also with you to someone who we might have fallen out with? had an issue with, might be misjudging, might have misjudged us. The kingdom life that God is calling us to then is a life where we can be reconciled to each other, as in Christ, God is reconciled to us. And verses 25 and 26 go on to elevate this to the legal resolution of disputes. Culturally, this seems to refer to a practice of the time whereby if somebody wronged you, you could yourself arrest them and take them to court. So imagine if you say or do the wrong thing and your colleague or housemate turns up with a squad of police to arrest you. You left me your share of the housework or you plagiarised my essay, so I'm taking you to court and suing you. The question of disputes between Christians is one that goes right through the Old Testament and later, of course, in chapter 18 of Matthew. Jesus provides a whole framework for conflict resolution, escalating from one-to-one hearings and straight up to the whole church or the council. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has a few things to say to a church who are dragging their disputes into secular court. Not necessarily because this is always avoidable or bad. Sometimes it may not be, and there's not a straight biblical prohibition because Paul wasn't scared to use Roman law when he had to to protect himself. But because in the case of the Corinthian church, a seemingly immature congregation were not trying to resolve things sooner and were dragging cases before judges who in those days were often corrupt, And shaming the body of Christ in a day when court cases were often public entertainment. If you've ever had to go to court for um, any reason, imagine people buying tickets and enjoying a day out at your court case while you're trying to get it sorted. And so again, this is foremostly about reconciliation, about paying your debts to each other and nipping disputes in the bud before they get too serious. And so, just as Jesus has interpreted the commandment about murder to tell us that we can't murder people with our thoughts or words either, so adultery gets a reinterpretation too. And again, this is in opposition to another Pharisee tradition that had kind of turned the adultery commandment into something that is a bit more like, don't get caught in the act, it's another get out. What Jesus has to say about marriage and divorce is going to be another sermon in this series. But this is important to him, partly because he wants to rescue what it's meant to be back back to the original pattern set in Genesis, the becoming of one flesh. But also because faithfulness in this area models something deeper. Marriage in scripture is often a metaphor for God's covenant relationship with Israel, the church, and us. And when in the Old Testament Israel goes off after foreign gods, it's literally called adultery. Partly because some of the Canaanite practices involved promiscuity, therefore literal adultery, but spiritual cheating too, because we're Christ's bride. And so the line, the practical line that these verses set down is one that Many commentators feel it's being crossed if looks are repeated, if we start coveting what can't be ours, and if it produces feelings or sensations in us that we shouldn't be allowing to take root. And the Bible's most famous example of this, of course, is King David, who by not nipping his infatuation with Bathsheba in the bud, set in motion a horrific train of events. And if you've read this story in 2 Samuel, you'll remember that he sees her bathing, takes her, tries to cover up his adultery with her by having her husband Uriah murdered. And only when the prophet Nathan confronts him does he face it. And we have the very beautiful penitence of Psalm 51. And so having radically reinterpreted these commandments for us, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus challenges us to some surgery. If your hand or your eye cause you to sin, get rid. Now, some Christians in the early church took this injunction about cutting off your hand or eye if it caused you to sin so literally... That in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, which was a big Christian council organized by the Emperor Constantine to decide on various things and to deal with some issues of heresy, was forced to formally ban self-mutilation by Christians And this would have been especially radical sounding to an audience used to an Old Testament law that told them that no animal with a blemish could be offered in sacrifice or that no descendant of Aaron with a physical defect could offer certain forms of worship. (laughs) But the old externals are internal now. Physical blemishes don't matter anymore because what the law has always pointed to and what it's now fulfilling is that it's, what inside, it's what's inside that really matters. The early church father, um, Origen, who was a bit of a theological nutjob at times, responded to this scripture by physically castrating himself. Clearly, we're not suggesting that you go home and do that. Please don't. But it obviously is calling us to some self-examination and asking us what we might need to let go of. And among other things, it's in a nutshell, it's showing us why there is no place in the Christian life for pornography. Because the Greek root, root word that we get that from is the same word that covers all sexual promiscuity. So pornography is promiscuity and it is adultery. Applying this to anger maybe takes a bit more thinking round, but clearly the key to what Jesus is challenging us about here is to look at how we view people. And so as well as working on heat of the moment, reactions to things, are there people that we've regarded with contempt, jealousy, lack of regard, lack of empathy? Has that colored, perhaps, how we view them? with both of these subjects that our passage has laid before us, do we need to review our opinions and things that we allow ourselves? Because Jesus isn't calling us to some kind of Freudian repression where we just bottle things away till they explode, but to expand our thinking. In her book, Switch on Your Brain, Dr. Caroline Leaf says this, As we think, we change the physical nature of our brain. As we consciously direct our thinking, we can wire out toxic patterns of thought and replace them with things that are healthier. And likewise, with the psychological acuity that the Bible always has, Paul, in Romans chapter 12, tells us this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so these are challenges, aren't they, for us all to pray about. And so would we ask God to show us, if we need to, why his will is the best thing for us, to absorb what Jesus says to us and ask him to help us by communion with him to renew our minds. And under God's word, be willing to challenge our own thinking and perhaps concepts of our rights to anger. And so the Sermon on the Mount has shown us how Jesus fulfills the law for us and now it starts to challenge us a bit more deeply and a bit more practically that some of the things that the Ten Commandments spoke to us about aren't just about the action, but about letting God reshape the attitude behind the action because this is the law fulfilled for us in spirit and in truth.